Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. This week on the show, I'm joined by my friend Nicole Arbach from The Athletic to talk about the next steps in the expansion of the college football playoff. There are a couple of significant meetings coming up involving the commissioners and university presidents who make the decisions about the playoff this week and next. There has been a lot of chatter about slowing down the process, but what does that mean? We'll ask Nicole about where things are on the road to expansion, where this is heading, and when we might get there. Then we'll preview week four of the season with our five most intriguing games. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us at appodcast.com, and you can find other podcasts there, like my colleague Rob Motti's NFL Podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your podcast. If you like what you hear, give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. If you'd like to email the show, send questions and comment to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is my good friend, Nicole Auerbach, from The Athletic. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Nicole wanted to do uh, two things this week. We wanted to talk about where the the negotiations, and I guess that might be a good way to describe it at this point, negotiations for playoff expansion stand as we head towards a couple of pretty big meetings, and of course, talk about some football and as we go into week four so thanks so much for joining me today nicole yeah absolutely and i i do think negotiations is a good term no one's coined that yet and i think you should you should definitely um own that yeah i i i, I think so in doing some of some of my own reporting in the last couple of days and we're recording this on tuesday morning and just to give you the lay of the land give everybody the lay of the land we're recording this on tuesday morning on wednesday the commissioners will be meeting partially in person, maybe some zooming in in Dallas to sort of talk some things out. And then next week is sort of the biggie meeting. And it's bigger because the presidents are involved in Chicago on, I believe it's going to be Tuesday, maybe go into Wednesday. But I think that the important part will be Tuesday, uh, September 28th. What we're seeing more and more is when we're talking about, quote unquote, slowing things down, might just be, hey, we want to talk a little more and do a little give and take on some issues. So what might be some of those issues, Nicole? Yeah, I think that that's probably the, the interesting piece, because there's a couple of different issues that I think are some sort of getting conflated here. Um and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but to me, the idea of slowing down a timeline is very different than just being against expansion yeah. and wanting to work. And George Klyopkov, the new Pac-12 commissioner, like phrases stuff like his issues with the proposal are at the margins. So I like to think of it that way. Like, you know, I, there, there's there's definitely a push within different conferences um, from athletic directors, people who would love to revisit the idea of an A team model and not just the 12, which is the only one that is being vetted that went through this summer evaluation period. But for the most part, I mean, I think if you're talking about, you know, the location of semifinal games and championship games, um, you know, are the first round sites going to be on campus or at bowls? 
things like that I would characterize as those margin issues. And so some people, that's that's it. They just wanted input on things like that, where the games are played, um, schedule, stuff like that. Then there are others who would love to relook at eight, um, people who are worked up about, you know, adding the extra game up to 17. But those are all separate to me than the timeline issue, which some of the reasons that people want to hit pause are personal and petty. Also, some of them have a lot of them have to do with wanting to take an expanded playoff to the open market. Some people just want the fallout from conference realignment to just settle and know when people are going to be in conferences. To me, that is a separate issue than whether you are pro-expansion, anti-expansion, pro-8, pro-12. Like Those are different because I think you can still hit the pause button and delay stuff and evaluate things more, but still be very pro-expansion overall. So, and even, I don't know if there are anybody, if there is anybody in this process, because you mentioned pro-expansion. Uh, the more I'm talking, to, like, I don't think anybody actually falls into the category of anti-expansion. Like, you could categorize Greg Sankey and the SEC's position as, um, what would be a good way to describe this, as okay with either. Right, I, there, the SEC is in no way anti-expansion, but what Greg Sankey will always sort of push out there is, we're okay if we don't here. Like we're not necessarily going to stand in the way of expansion. We seem to be, there, there's a lot of of, of what ex, what would happen in expansion that would benefit the SEC, but they're not um, actively pushing for it and would be fine with that. So that's, I think that is a good way to look at this. There's no one who is fighting against expansion. There are people who want, there are, there are basically mostly folks who want expansion. There are some folks who might want to reconsider how much expansion. And there are a few who are sort of like, yeah, we're okay with what it is, but we're not going to stand in the way of expansion. So that alone should sort of give people the idea of where this is going. If nobody is fighting against it, it's going to happen. It's just going to matter. It's just a matter of sort of when and how much. Yes. And so so that's also an important thing to keep an eye on in process terms is this is going to have to be unanimous. And we we know how unanimous works, right? Like, you know, you have to get everybody pretty much there. You know, you know, maybe maybe you have to do some convincing. Maybe not everyone's like super gung ho about something, but it does have to be and appear unanimous. And when you have 10 FBS commissioners and Notre Dame athletic director, Jack Swarbrick, and you have, you know, I would say four people in that room that have reasons or believe they have reasons to, to slow this thing down. That's where like, we've all been acting for the last basically six, seven weeks that it's, it's probably overwhelmingly most likely this thing is slowing down and they're not going to rubber stamp the 12 team model that they proposed in June at this meeting at the end of the month, because that was originally the hope, right? Like the timeline was hoping that everyone could vet this, this proposal all summer, get feedback from your campuses. And then this meeting with the presidents could lock in when it's going to start and how it's going to happen. And, and those, the, the, the big questions that everyone wondered right away was, you know, when can we do this thing? 
Now, I think, you know, you had obviously a number of conferences, the ACC, Big Ten, and the Pac-12 were not on the working group retroactively. They're coming out of this saying, huh, that would have been an important room to be in. Our input wasn't part of this. They sprung the proposal on everybody on the same day, basically the same day that it went public, got everyone excited about it. We have concerns about the process. And so some of this is like, on principle and process versus, again, like you said, no one's opposed to expanding. It's just personal preferences of what it looks like and when it takes effect. And th- that stuff is 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 fine. I, I do think, you know, I, I talked to my colleague Stu Mandela about this a lot because one of the first things I said in the spring was, hey, this might take until 2026, no matter what, right? Because of the open market element and and not wanting to just hand this to ESPN in their exclusive negotiating window. And, you know, Stu and, and Andy Staples, they were so convinced, no, you're not going to announce something and then, you know, wait five years. And of course, ESPN will figure out what they need to do. And this will happen as soon as it possibly could, which could be in two seasons. Well, it's very college football that this could take five years after they <laughs> announce a proposal to great fanfare. But that certainly is, is a major possibility, if not the most likely scenario right now. Right. So there's two, one question I've been trying to get answered and I'll probably write something later in the week. Once I'm, once I'm done talking to as many people as I need to talk to is what exactly does slowing it down mean? <laughs> like, because like what, like, Give me give me a timetable that is slowed down. And I think I think where what I'm coming up with here is it's very possible that they could, again, sort of hit a little bit of a pause here, say we're all on board. We need to work out a couple of things, but we're not going to, again, as you said, rubber stamp this. The presidents again meet in January at the national championship game. That's always happens. That that's a that's a that's a common uh, in place meeting. Um, the the commissioners and the presidents get together, sort of look around, say, "Hey, we good with all this stuff? Any any things we anything we need to we need to discuss?" And they do it in January. So I do wonder if if you're concerned with process, want a little more input, want to maybe. If you're the Pac-12 and Big Ten, uh, put some stakes in the ground around the Rose Bowl. And I know it's, people get tired of it always coming back to the Rose Bowl, but we'll get back to that in a second. If you want to, uh, quote unquote, slow things down a little bit, that's a that gives you a few more months to, again, address some issues, maybe make a statement about process, and but not necessarily derail this in a way that you are a not expanding at all and b that you could still keep things moving at a reasonable pace. So I think there that's an interesting piece to keep in mind. They they get together again in January. Um the other part of it, the TV part of it and as you said the idea of 2023, 2026, how quickly can we do this? I one thing that I have not been able to get an answer to and I don't know if we're going to be able to get a straight answer but hopefully soon is can you, can they, can the college football playoff bring the new stuff to the market? I think that there is some belief that we don't have that they don't have to wait until the contract is up 
to have multiple TV partners because you have the existing playoff and you have the new but playoff. Here, so okay, so, the, so qu- the question just is, do you need to, can you add an addition to the house and just sell that separately? Okay, so I've also heard those who believe that that is possible. But doesn't that defeat the entire purpose of what ESPN did and got, which is the exclusive rights to the event? I that's what I thought too. <laughs> so so I'm I'm with you on this, and nobody like while I've heard so, I mean, bits like that, of this, nobody's just, explained it to Fundamentally, isn't that me. the point of yeah. doing what they did and spending the money? Nobody has explained to me how that exactly works and what. I mean, let's look, we none of us have <laughs> no, seen I've, the contract. I've heard it too. Yeah. I've heard it too. Yeah, but I like just like on a fundamental principle part, I get confused by that one because I think that is why we have some of the crosstalk here of. And some of the confusion about oh we there, there's a there's a group right there's a group like the you know the the, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten um, especially because they are going into negotiations with their TV partners soon and I think that there's first of all it makes a lot of sense to have multiple TV partners it especially makes a multiple a lot of sense to have multiple TV partners. If your network is with one of those TV partners, so if you're going to be on Fox, it makes some sense for Fox to have a stake in the postseason. Um, but I, I, I also believe that there are there are some others who seem to be positioned as being, oh, no, we want to get it done sooner. We don't mind it being on ESPN. I think that there are people who believe that I think everybody wants this thing to a certain degree to be with multiple TV partners. And there may be just some misunderstanding of how it gets there. Yeah, I I don't think it has to just be, well, you're partnered with Fox, so you prefer this, right? Because I think there's a lot of people who have been concerned and over the last few months probably more concerned about ESPN being you know the only the main the dominant presence in media partners in this I mean think about how many different statements ESPN has had to put out in in conference realignment claiming that they didn't like choreograph all of this stuff right like that just doesn't happen when you have multiple partners and you have kind of a push and pull and you know, one of the, the phrases I keep using about the formation of the alliance is about checks and balances. And it, it's the same thing about having multiple broadcast partners. And, and Klyovkov has said this, that like, that's the way a, it, you get the most money when you have like a true open market and true competition for bidding for services. But it's just better for your sport to have more people financially invested in it that way. And I think that's that's something that I think even people in leagues that have great relationships with ESPN, I think they see that benefit from a business perspective and growing the sport perspective and national audiences and time slots and the investment from networks. And I do think people are concerned about just how many properties ESPN has gobbled up around college football and their influence in that. I wrote a story back in June about ESPN and their coverage being so playoff-centric and how they only end up talking about a couple of teams and that shapes the narrative of, and, and you know, we don't, like, what, do we really talk about, like, if Iowa goes 10-2 and two and they go to the Rose Bowl, they never get talked about, is that even a successful season? Just sort of like this playoff fatigue and the prism that we think about the whole sport and so much of that coming from broadcasting. And, 
you know, they admitted that and they said that they're trying, you know, on game broadcasts and, and things like game day to talk about more teams and get back at some of that stuff. But like that becomes narratives. That becomes the dominant conversation where you only end up talking about six or eight teams each year for four spots when you have one partner and that's how they frame their season, right? From the, from the preseason on. So all of this stuff is interconnected. And I do think that even people in the room who have great relationships with ESPN see the benefits in having multiple partners. And, and so all of that is, is fine and, and well and good, but it does lead to, you know, potentially five more seasons of a 14 model that no one's really happy with that has a lot of issues and ripple effects for the sport, but no one's really able to do anything about that because they initially signed up for a 12 year deal, which by the way, that would be one of my suggestions moving forward is to do shorter contracts. Because 12 years, as we have seen, is a really long time. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I, I think you will see six. I think you will you see some six years. The other thing I, w- I, I would suggest, two things. A, I think it would actually be good for ESPN. I, I know, you know, maybe not financially. ESPN probably wants the whole thing. I think for health of the sport and, and ESPN not being constantly – uh, portrayed as a villain in this sport that or a puppet master, it would probably be better for ESPN to have there be multiple partners in the playoff because I just think it leads to all the ESPN is pulling the strings, ESPN related conspiracy theory. So uh, there is that part. Let me just ask you one, one quick thing. I don't know how much you get a chance to engage with like game day. Uh, if you're like a, you know, get up at nine and watch the whole thing. I kind of experience game day. Uh, first of all, I've, I've been at the site of the last two game days of the last couple of weeks, but I don't, but, though I'm not necessarily showing up with a sign. <laughs> and um, I don't like watch, I, I watch game day kind of in and out, right? And I'll throw Fox on for a second or I'll go get coffee or I'll go work out. Like I'm not like super engaged with the with the pregame space. I kind of flow in and out of it a little bit. Though I think last the last couple of weeks I've probably been involved in it. I've watched a little more of it than maybe I, I would normally. Completely anecdotally, I thought, even before I came into this interview with you, so it's not something that popped into my head when you mentioned it. That, you know, going back to your story about being super playoff focused, I felt like now again it's only week two and three, so maybe you shouldn't be talking about the playoff. But that hasn't stopped ESPN and other, and, and their and their you know broadcast before. I have felt as if it has not been so playoff driven already. Now, again, completely anecdotally, me coming in and out of it, I'm wondering if you have had any of that sense or uh, in, in watching coverage of games and, and the pregame shows that, that maybe they have pulled back on the on the playoff talk. They said that they were going to. Okay. They, they said this was something that had been an offseason conversation topic. They didn't like the idea of eliminating teams like – you know, week two, um, one of the examples that was given to me in the article was, you know, how do you eliminate a Penn State? That means a lot to the sport. Obviously, Penn State's 3-0, and and it's very easy to include them in your regular coverage. But I think some of the stuff, um, you know, I remember they've had, they've had games where they've interviewed players from other teams about basically about the playoff during the broadcast. Like I'm thinking about Ian Book being interviewed during – 
Clemson, Virginia Tech last year Mm -hmm. and taking over the broadcast for 10 minutes and the two fan bases involved in the game were not happy about that, right? Like that type of thing is clearly a conscious decision and things that you don't have to do. Um, Edicts towards, you know, game broadcasts that have nothing to do with playoff teams to talk about playoff teams. Like you don't have to do that. There was also um, one moment where in a recent, I think it was this past game day, you know, one, one of the ways that they can mention more teams and get people involved because people like to hear their teams mentioned is like, you know, during some of the betting stuff. So like super dogs. And I think it was like the air force game. Something got mentioned and, you know, Reese said something like, we're trying to mention more teams. Like we're trying to, you know, we're trying to do like, it was, it was clear that like, it was, mm-hmm. it was about that, that, that reflection about not just talking about the playoff. So all of this stuff, and this is the same premise about playoff expansion. Some of the reasons that, you know, it was the, the 12 team model was proposed the way that it was. It, it's like the health of the sports stuff, because you don't want this to just become about Clemson and Alabama and Ohio State and Oklahoma every year. And I think that's part of the reason everyone is pretty giddy about the idea that maybe things are more wide open this year than they have been in the last couple of years. Even because, though it's only a week. I mean, honestly, we yeah, could, we could quickly revert back obviously. to, yeah, I think we all jumped on that last week. Uh, we all sort of wrote that same uh, takeaway from last week. Uh, I just felt good that I w- my, my takeaway had to be on the wire early. So I was able to get it out there before everybody else, just because of the nature of the way I think, the business I think is on my side. Just, they're just willing it to happen, though, because it is a little. It did feel like that, and yeah, I wrote it, so I'm I'm guilty. But it did feel like that. <laughs> yeah, and so again, like this is all just people thinking about the health of the sport. Um, I don't think anyone is anti watching a Nick Saban team execute at the highest level, and just it's a thing of beauty. But it's about the health of the sport, and I think the sport is healthier when you have. Um, more balance. You have teams in different regions that are good. You have fresh blood, like all that stuff. And so that's where, like, when you say, oh, you know, when fans get annoyed that coverage is too playoff centric or whatever, it's because that's really, that's off putting for people. And, and they do want to hear about the random teams and the quirky stuff and the, you know, the major upsets and the fact that, you know, so many FCS teams have beat FBS. Like, those are for people who care about like the full sport, you, you pay attention to all that stuff. And so the, some of the reasons that playoff expansion was expedited was to offset some of this mm-hmm. concern. Yeah. I, listen, again, I, the last couple of weeks I've been at Penn State, Auburn and Iowa, Iowa State. Very lucky. Right. That, you know, we're back to normal, full stadiums, great atmosphere. Yeah, Yes, both of those games could have playoff implications, but regardless, they were awesome. You know, the, the Iowa State game was not an awesome game, but it was an awesome feel. It was awesome, like, to be in Ames for essentially maybe the biggest home game that they've ever had was very cool. And last week's atmosphere at uh, Happy Valley was amazing. And it was just like, this looks great. This feels great. These two teams are, I don't know if these two teams are great, but they're certainly good. And, you know, Full speed ahead, man. Like, this is cool. So I, I guess, you know, the idea that, they, that there needs to be a playoff implication in some in some way, shape, or form, it doesn't necessarily need to be for this stuff to be fun. Last point on this. Ultimately, and again, it goes back to what you were saying. I still find myself thinking they're going to get to 12. I was talking, you know, so uh, Keith Gill from the, the Sun Belt 
I think, had a really good line that summed it up well. We were talking about slowing it down and this and that and reexamining and all those buzzwords that have been sort of floating around over the last couple of weeks. And what he said is like, nobody has fun- has, has given me a fundamental reason, has, has explained to me fundamentally why 12 would be bad. <laughs> like we, we got to 12, we looked at 12, we thought 12 looked really good. I can understand wanting to look at other things, but nobody has told me why this one that we had landed on first isn't still the best one. And that's ultimately why I think that they will land on 12. I'm not asking you to make a prediction as to when and how, but at least a prediction I won't hold you to. But what do you think? Where do you think we land as far as format? Yeah, I do think there's a lot of convincing people that do believe it will still end at 12, even though you will have people pushing to revisit eight. And that was something I jumped out you know, when Bob Bowlesby did his media tour, he said, eh, if it's eight or 12, if it's, you know, at the end of the contract or, you know, whatever, like it was, it, he specifically said eight. And that's, I think, coming up more and more. You're hearing it. Um, you're also hearing coaches say they prefer eight. I, I think 12 addresses more of the issues that prompted the whole thing, which is engaging right. more teams throughout the season and mm-hmm. keeping more people um in, in the hunt and having more access. So I think those were really compelling reasons to eventually stay at 12. Um, I, I, I think ultimately, you know, it's probably going to be at the end of the contract. I thought what you said earlier about like, okay, how do you adjust the timeline to keep the ball rolling is pretty interesting because even if it is a few years away, you don't want to just like truly table this for, three years and then revisit it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's still like the ball needs to keep rolling. You can't just, you can't just flip the switch on this like in 2024. Which maybe originally you could have because whenever your negotiations were coming up, but at this point, everything has been so public. um, I think you need to continue to do that. You do need to work through the Rose Bowl issues, right? You need to work through the Rose Bowl issues, first round sites. If you do have, um, you know, conferences like the big 10 that would prefer more championship games in their footprint in some of the domed NFL stadiums. Like those are things that, you know, probably require hashing out and and some time. So, you know, you, but you, but you do need to keep it in, in a regular path. They do have the meeting in January. They always have spring meetings in, in April. Like you've got to set benchmarks on these things. Like part of the reason we're covering this meeting the end of September is they sent a bet benchmark for it, right? Like it was supposed to be, okay, we're coming out of our summer evaluation period. We might be able to, you know, approve the model. So you need to set things like that to keep it going. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think it was a different world on June 10th when this was unveiled and the timeline felt very different. It felt very inevitable. It felt very as fast as possible. And, you know, we're in a we're in a very different place right now. So I I just uh, you know, my expectations have have really slowed for, you know, when we'll see this actually play out on the field. And I, I do think, though, if you know, right now, as we're recording this before this meeting at the end of September, before both meetings, um, you know, I would still think 12 has a lot of support. And I also think that there's enough people who think that it should happen at the end of the contract that 12 in 2026 feels most likely. 
All right, we're going to take a very quick break talking with Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic. Uh, did a little playoff talk there, and now we will preview week four with we will each go through our list of our five most interesting games of the week, and we'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast with your host, Ralph Russo, the Associated Press College Football Writer. If you have any questions for our host or any of our guests, email the show at aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. And to get the rest of your football fix, also take a listen to the AP Pro Football Podcast with host Rob Motti, writer and sports radio personality as he tackles all the important news on and off the field of the National Football League and provide you with insider exclusives and in-depth analysis along with insightful interviews with Hall of Famers, current players, coaches, and executives. Rob will take you around the league, break down the biggest games, and keep you in the know only the way AP can. Like, subscribe, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Nicole Arbach joining us today from The Athletic. Um, okay, Nicole, so this is what we, we've done. And we have, this has been a segment that has now been, uh, we have, the listeners are living through me working this thing out. <laughs> like we did it week one. I went away from it, thought like, oh, you know what? That was actually a cool way to, to, to preview the week. We went back to it in week three, but now I'm still tweaking it a little bit. And the, the tweak was I didn't necessarily want us to have exactly the same games. So, you know, we, we sort of conferred a little bit beforehand. Uh, there is at least one game on here that's the same. But nonetheless, we are going to go through the list five through one, one being the most interesting. You will go first. I will go next. We will quickly talk about each game and we will preview the weekend. And just like ESPN is trying to do, we are trying to be uh, wide ranging and far flung. We are trying to get into as many interesting games as possible. So it doesn't necessarily have to be the best games of the weekend. It's just the games that you find most interesting. And then you give us a couple of reasons why. So thanks for playing the game today, <laughs> Nicole. And what is your fifth most interesting game of the weekend? The one that you're looking forward to watch? Okay. My fifth most looking forward to game, which that doesn't sound right, but you know what I'm <laughs> intriguing. saying. Intriguing. I like to use the word intriguing. It's a, it seems like a nice most intriguing game to me mm-hmm. is Rutgers, Michigan, which is a battle of unbeaten teams. Rutgers is three and zero, and they look pretty good. So, uh, I, this is a homer pick for Nicole, but not because of why but you not, think. Not because of Michigan. <laughs> not because Nicole went to Michigan, but because Nicole loves New Jersey, her home state. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, I, you know, you and I. You know, when when I was living in New York, when Rutgers was interesting or had an interesting team playing, like we were there a lot, right? Like that that gets you to Rutgers. And, you know, when things are potentially trending in a positive direction, you bring back Greg Schiano, things like that, Rutgers becomes a lot more interesting and becomes more of a player. Um, you know, you clearly can follow the recruiting, but they got a bunch of inter- impact transfers throughout the Big Ten. And I just think that, not only are they not a pushover in the Big Ten East, but them and Maryland, um, which are both undefeated, by the way, and both trending towards reaching a bowl game. But it, it makes the East 
so much harder when the bottom, the teams that typically finish towards the bottom are not, are, are, are improving and getting better and have, you know, defenses, have functional offenses, have dynamic special teams players like Aaron Crookshank for, for Rutgers and my guy, the punter, Adam Corsack. So I just think that that's what makes this interesting. Rutgers has Michigan and then Ohio State. I'm not thinking they're going to win these games, but I do think they're more challenging than they've been in a while. And I, I think that's what makes a wide open Big Ten East really interesting is that like you can't just walk over the bottom half like you have in the past. And that contributes, I think, to that wide open nature because, you know, if Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, they're going to have to go through these teams and maybe they get tripped up at one point. Maybe one of them gets tripped up by one of them at some point. Um, but yeah, so I just want to shout out Rutgers because they're 3-0 and, um, you know, things are going pretty well in Shiano round two. And Michigan might be very good. I think we're all going to do, I think we're all going to sort of be a little skeptical because we've kind of yes. been here before with Michigan. But the fact of the matter is they have been one of the most dominant teams in the country against whatever their schedule is. You can pick it apart, but they have done the thing that you should do against teams that maybe, you know, aren't up to speed. And that is they have beat the heck out of them. So, uh, yeah, I, I am kind of interested to see how this game plays out again. Like, how good is Rutgers? How good is Michigan? And, um, and right, the bottom of the Big Ten East, which the Big Ten East could be super, super hard. If those bottom teams, because that was always the thing, right? Top four, really, really good. Bottom three, eh, not so much. But now if the top four are very good and the bottom three are not pushovers, it becomes maybe, you know, other than the SEC West, without question, the, the toughest division in college football. All right, so my number five is, again, a little bit off the radar. It's Syracuse and Liberty. And here's why. Because Liberty's pretty good here with Malik Willis. And the back three games of Liberty's schedule are tough. They have Ole Miss in there. They have Louisiana Lafayette in there. They have Army in there. But if they don't lose this one, if Syracuse doesn't doesn't beat them in the Dome, and Syracuse is 2-1, and one, had lost to Rutgers and didn't necessarily produce any offense there and have a couple of wins against FCS and, and, um, and a MAC team where they were very impressive— but I guess my point is, if Syracuse can't stop Liberty here, Liberty's going to head into November very possibly undefeated and becoming like kind of a interesting-ish team with you Freeze and Malik Willis at quarterback. So, you know, I, listen, I don't know if Syracuse is up for the task here. Syracuse lost to Liberty, I believe it was last year they lost to Liberty. But um, but but I, this stood out to me because if 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 not now, I don't know when. Well, you know, listen, they they got to go to UAB next week, Liberty. So maybe that's the point. But their schedule has got a lot of relatively easy games on here. So this one stood out to me as like Syracuse on a Friday night. Is that a spot where maybe they could get taken out? The other thing too is. This is kind of an important game for Dino Babers and Syracuse. I mean, there's not a lot of really easily winnable games on the orange schedule either. And if Dino Babers is going to keep his job, he's probably going to need to get to five or six wins. And if they don't win this one, there might not be a lot of other opportunities to get to that five or six. So that's, I'm throwing Liberty and Syracuse as my number five. And, and you've forgotten to mention the greatest backstory in any matchup. I mean, this is the, the Hugh Freeze hospital bed game oh that's the that's second right. anniversary that's of right. that game. that's when they played that's right well no they then they played again okay and now we get to relive that again I of did. him waving 
from coaching from a hospital bed in the coaching box to Dino Babers on the field a- at the end an, of the game. An iconic moment without question Icon- in college iconic sports. Iconic and perfect college football moment. Exactly. You're number four, Nicole. Most intriguing uh, Mine is SMU-TCU, which right. I just think is always very fun. Um, and, you know, it's just this, the skillet game is great. It matters to a lot of people. And I'm just excited for it. I yeah. love in-state stuff. Yeah, and uh, you know both teams. I, I think both teams are undefeated too. Um, SMU played a wacky game last week, won by a, a, a hail mary on the last play of the game. And yeah, usually a fun matchup because there's usually a lot of fireworks here between a Sunny Dykes team and what is usually a pretty good offense. So yeah, I like that one. And you're right, skillet game. I mean, they're playing for a skillet. Yeah, how can how can that not be a good one? <laughs> My number four is LSU Mississippi State. Mostly because everything about LSU is kind of interesting to me this year because I feel like that is a program that could go off the rails. I really like, you know, last year, uh, Mississippi State threw for about 600 yards in that first game. It was opening game of the season, and we thought Mississippi State was going to be very good, and it turns out they weren't. It just turned out that LSU stunk. And Mississippi State coming off of a loss last week to Memphis, controversial, weird punt return touchdown, probably got a little screwed by the officials. So there's a lot of weird stuff going on between um, these, to a certain backstory between these two teams kind of coming into this game. Who needs this victory? And again, mostly I am very curious as to how things play out. What kind of stability there is at at LSU? LSU could ha- could still have a very good season. They have a lot of talent, and this could s- still be a ten and two type, nine and three type team. But I also feel like there is some precariousness there, and things could go off the rails. And if they're going to like defining going off the rails is losing to Mississippi State. Yes, I also completely agree about LSU. It's felt that way. Even in, even before the UCLA game, I think the the precarious nature of this, the the Gene Chizik comparisons, right, of one flash in the pan season and and what that means for a head coach, all of that's there. So LSU is a team that you just kind of got to keep an eye on, no matter who they're playing every single week. But for, for all of those reasons, um, and the fact that they genuinely have a ton of talent on that team, my number three game is one that. Um, I'm keeping it on the list, even though the head coach will not be there for one of these teams. Uh, San Jose State, Western Michigan. Western Michigan's head coach, Tim Lester, announced on Tuesday morning that he tested positive for COVID. He's vaccinated, mild symptoms. Um, But he's going to have to miss this game, which is a bummer coming off of their big win over Pitt. But I still think this is one of the more interesting group of five matchups. Nick Starkle and company... Western Michigan coming off of their win over Pitt. So I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it as number three, even without one of the head coaches. Yeah, and Tim Lester is a guy who's starting to draw a little buzz, especially after beating Pitt last week, as maybe he's the next uh, Mac coach that comes out of there and moves to a bigger job. Um, I-, I will say this. Western Michigan beats Pitt. Western Michigan also was one of the teams that got crushed by Michigan. So if you're kind of looking... Wait, but- does that look as bad anymore? That no, that's exactly it. You sort of look at it and go, "Oh, well, you know, if if 
Pitt, if if Michigan destroyed that team, maybe that team's got a little feistiness in, in it. Again, we do this transitive property thing, especially at the, this point in the season, and probably tie ourselves in knots about it. But it, it might mean something. It might mean something that that team was able to beat Pitt and, and Michigan State. Uh, excuse me, Michigan dismissed them so easily. So, yeah, I'm kind of into the whole, like, good MAC team, good Mountain West team. Let's see what happens in the in the group of five. Good, I, I like that pick. So my number three is UCLA-Stanford. We mentioned UCLA before. So UCLA last week um, took a lot of the feel-good out of the Pac-12 by losing to Fresno State. It was a hell of a Pac-12 after dark as the Pac-12 got swept by San Diego State beats Utah. Um what were the other ones here? San Diego, San Diego State beats Utah. Um, BYU beats Arizona State. Fresno State beats UCLA. And I'm even missing one in there. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. The, the worst one of all. Arizona loses to Northern Arizona for the first time in 90 years. Uh, the one that hurt the most for the Pac-12 was UCLA losing to Fresno State. And Jake Hayner, which was just, you know, I just I went back and watched the highlights of it. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable the way that guy played down the stretch, clearly hurt and beating UCLA. I'm interested to see how UCLA bounces back against Stanford. I'm also interested to see, like, what is up with this Stanford team that looked awful first the first week and has now won two straight games? Like, is this maybe Stanford is a real player here in the Pac-12? Or, you know, is UCLA going to come out, get take care of its business? And maybe UCLA losing to Fresno State was really just a statement about how good Fresno State is. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty interesting, um, as well as Stanford's just trajectory of their season mm-hmm. could be one of those weird Stanford years. So I think that's a really good one. Um, I'm gonna so I'm gonna say my second most intriguing game is I think your number one most intriguing game, and I think that you put it there because you're covering it. So <laughs> that's Maybe. we're basically on the same page. Wisconsin Notre Dame. You know, it's the marquee game of the weekend. It's where game day and Fox Big Noon are going to be. I just don't. So I'm excited for it. Absolutely. Obviously, it took a little bit of the luster away from it that Wisconsin lost to Penn State in week one and that Notre Dame has nearly lost to Toledo and, and Florida State. I the one reason this isn't number one on my list is I don't know if either of these teams are great mm-hmm. and I think we thought that they could be when the season started again we don't have to look at this through playoff prism but just like are these really good teams you know how do we feel about them um I I, I think they are more mediocre than anticipated I could be wrong we've only seen very small samples of them but that is why they are not number one on my list here and are number two, because I just am not sure how good they are. Yeah, they are number one on my list. And we'll just skip ahead to that one and go back to my number two for a second, because I'll give you my, my thought is I think the winner of this game gets to redefine its season. Right. If you win, if you if you now and that could be that could be overstating it ultimately in the long run at the end of the year they both could be sort of eight and four nine nine and three ish teams but my sense of it is the winner of this team of this game um gets to sort of come out of it and say listen you know what that was a good win uh in 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 notre dame's case hey we're four and oh you know don't tell us how we got here we're four and oh and we just beat wisconsin like we we have a chance to to do big things this season and if you're Wisconsin, you can sort of say, okay, 
I know we lost the Penn State game, but we've got this nice non-conference win. We're going to go back into the conference play. We have Michigan coming up. Like we can still be a real factor here. Um, and I, the other part of it is that, though it's it's a lot of like I'm just wanting. I just want to find out more about these teams. Do does Notre Dame need to play Tyler Buckner a little more to get that running game going? Um, uh, Leo Chanel is coming back for. Uh, Wisconsin to, to add to what is already a really good defense. What will Graham Mertz look like? I am just kind of interested in seeing more about these teams and having them do it together on the same field is really interesting to me. So that's your number two. It's my number one. So we'll skip when my number one comes around. My number two is what is wrong with Clemson? And let's see what, mm. if they can get it fixed against North Carolina State. Like what? What have you done with Clemson? <laughs> like that's what my you know. Like this can't be. They have to get this thing. Fit. Like the the guy who is playing quarterback who can't break two hundred yards this year, DJ Uyunglele. Like he threw for eight hundred yards in two games last yeah. year when he started coming off the bench for Trevor Lawrence. So what is going on with Clemson? I don't know if North Carolina State is particularly good. I don't know if anybody in the ACC outside of Clemson is going to be particularly good. And now I'm not even sure Clemson is particularly good. You know, the the, the athletes and the talent says that the, Clemson will get it right. I would like to see how quickly they get it right. And I know North Carolina State has at least enough players to make Clemson have to play well. Right, they Clemson can't just mess around and beat North Carolina State. If they play truly poorly, they will probably lose this game. Let's see what Clemson's got. Yeah, I'm totally with you on that. It is bizarre and confusing and difficult to watch this offense not have anything figured out, and just it's it's painful and it's a struggle to gain yardage which is weird. And we know that DJ we've, we've seen him be a great quarterback with different pieces around him in different settings last year. So it's really jarring. I, I think, you know, defensively they're, they're good and they're going to, that's how they're stayed in games, but I, I'm with you totally. We need to see that growth and we need to see it fast uh, because certainly they do not look like a playoff Clemson team. Uh, but they just they just don't look good. Um, something is wrong. Something is wrong offensively, and and they need to fix it. Um, and and you're hearing tones and comments out of Dabo that we have not heard in a very very long time. My number one game of the week that I'm excited for is Texas A&M at Arkansas. You mentioned teams. Part of the reason that you're excited about Wisconsin Notre Dame is learning about the teams. I want to learn about Texas A&M. I really would like to see what they can be, what they look like. And Arkansas was, it's just really fun. I mean, like that was in, when they beat Texas and the energy and the way that they did it and just kept running over them. Like that was just a really fun game, fun team to watch. And they have just so become the personality and identity of their coach, which was like the perfect marriage of hire and place. And I, so I, I just like watching Arkansas. Um, and they, they contribute to the fact that the SEC West is, is you know, just a, a nightmare to get through. But A&M is a team that we've talked about as a potential playoff team. We've talked about how much money Jimbo Fisher is getting paid to take this team to the playoff. And, you know, Haynes Kings goes down. Um, 
you know, you're, you're working in a new quarterback, you're figuring out your offensive line, your run game, all of these pieces struggle against a Colorado team that Minnesota just totally wiped out. Like, I, I don't I don't know what to make. Like, I don't know how good A&M is. And so this is going to be a really good barometer of what this team can be and what their ceiling should be. So uh, one of the reasons why I didn't put this one on my list is because I knew you had it number one and I knew we'd talk about it. Again, this is the evolution of this segment. I, I want to get as many games in here as possible. So so a little, pulling the curtain back to a little production meeting, um, even though we didn't necessarily have a, a big meeting, but that's one of the reasons why I knew you were going to bring it up. I love... I do. I am super interested in this game, and I'm going to use the athletics term here, right? State of the program. This is a state of the program game to a certain degree for Texas A&M. At this point, where Texas A&M is or should be in its development under Jimbo Fisher, Fisher is you beat Arkansas. Now, they beat Arkansas a lot. They have beaten Arkansas a lot over the last couple of years. But I, I, I do... I can't help but think of sort of like what panic level hits in at, in College Station if the Arkansas, which is only year two, not even in early in year two of its rebuild under Sam Pittman, who took over a much more discombobulated program, if Arkansas beats your ten, you know your your seventy five million dollar you know coach who has a 10-year contract that just got extended again. Like, it's an interesting dichotomy of two programs and where they're at. And this is, Texas A&M needs to win this game. Texas A&M needs to be like a, a serious contender to to Alabama this year, not worrying about beating Arkansas. Now, listen, that doesn't mean I think Texas A&M should roll Arkansas. Arkansas has clearly got some dudes, and they know who they are, and they have a good identity. I think that this game is, even in years when one team has been much better than the other, this game tends to be close. This tends to be a close rivalry on a neutral site. But it is an interesting sort of psychological test for you know for for AM fans uh, especially if if uh, if our, if AM were to lose this game and again I think it's a state of the program game AM is supposed to be on this level Arkansas is supposed to be on this level let's see how it plays out yes I agree all right so um I think we got it all in good job Nicole those are our five most interesting in- intriguing games of the weekend. Actually, let's just do this super fast, just to sort of uh, sum up what we just went through. Nicole's five most intriguing games are Rutgers-Michigan, homer pick for the New Jersey native. Uh, number four is SMU-TCU, the skillet game. Uh, San Jose State, Western Michigan is number three, excellent G5 contest. Uh, number two, Wisconsin-Notre Dame. Number one, Texas A&M at uh, against Arkansas at Jerry World. And my top five most intriguing games of the weekend are Liberty at Syracuse, LSU, Mississippi State, number three, UCLA, Stanford, number two, Clemson, North Carolina State, and number one for me is Notre Dame, Wisconsin. Nicole, so glad that you could join us today, and I will be in your fair city of Chicago pretty soon, and hopefully we will see each other in person. If At the very least, we will be stalking uh, hotel lobbies at a meeting for the college football playoff. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And now three and out. First down. 
Let's talk about officiating because anecdotally, it seems like there have been several high-profile games with some very not great officiating. Like, for example, the game I was at last week, Auburn at Penn State. In that game, most notably, Penn State lost a down because of an officiating mistake and punted on third down. That's embarrassing and can't happen, but Penn State won the game, so that took some of the attention away from the mistake. And as always, there were targeting calls last week that got football fans on Twitter hot and bothered. So, point one. I'm done debating targeting on Twitter and trying to play internet rules official. I'm not really adding anything to the conversation there. I understand and agree with why the rule is in place. There are some good reasons to tweak the rule, and I have reported and shared those. I have reported and shared the reasons why the rule has not been tweaked. I don't really have a strong opinion either way on what should be done. And I know a lot of folks do, which brings me to my broader point. I have a hard time engaging in the angst about officiating. That doesn't mean I believe all officiating is great or that it is generally terrible. Officiating has never been, whether it be as a fan or as someone who covers sports, it's never been something that really moved me the way it does many others who follow not just college football, but all kinds of sports. I would even go so far as to say it's been a blind spot for me and that it is to the detriment of my coverage of college football because readers care a lot about officiating, so I need to be more aware of reporting on it. The Penn State loss of down mistake was a pretty good example. Because Penn State won that game, I moved on from the down mistake in the first half, determining in my mind that it was not really a big issue. But the reality was I should have written up something short on it and made sure it was addressed in some way for the AP's coverage because it matters to readers. So I need to be better as far as that goes. However, I won't concede on another issue. Fans obsess about officiating to an extent where I think it needlessly takes away from the enjoyment of the game. If you're going to lose your mind on every other play and be the guy or gal who tweets screen caps of holding calls, are you actually having fun watching this game? The other part of this is I believe the emphasis on officiating and the occasional blown call takes players and coaches off the hook. Yes, I know Indiana-Cincinnati turned on a targeting call, but Indiana could have stopped the Bearcats on that drive, and Indiana could have not turned the ball over four times, including near the goal line. I'm confident I could have found at least one important call or non-call during that game that went against the Bearcats. Going back to the Penn State game, there were a couple of calls, including a crucial spot that looked iffy, that went Auburn's way. There was also a targeting call late on Auburn that seemed kind of questionable. Ultimately, the teams decide the games. Players and coaches, I believe, actually understand this even more than fans and tend to be less bothered by a blown call here or there. Again, doesn't mean officials should not be held accountable or work to get better, but rare is the game where a call 
or two makes as much impact as many fans and media, for that matter, think it does. Second down. Every year there is a head coaching job or two that comes open that we really didn't see coming heading into the season. Miami might be that job this season. Manny Diaz is only in year three, and there was a lot of optimism that this season could be a good one for the Canes. Maybe not a Canes are back season where they uh, present a serious challenge to Clemson in the ACC, but it was reasonable to think Miami could win nine or 10 games, contend for the ACC Coastal, and you know maybe even win it. I think they were a co-favorite, so to speak, with North Carolina. After a one and two start, and with concerns about quarterback De'Ara King's health, the Canes might be in danger of something more like a seven and five season. Miami doesn't look discernibly better than most of the rest of the Coastal. I just don't know if there's a ton of patience to be had at Miami these days. And if you throw a loss to, you know, a Virginia or a Pitt or heaven forbid, struggling Florida State on Diaz's record. Does that lead to the type of apathy that forces the administration to make another coaching move? All that turnover is not healthy for a program, but I doubt Miami is going to stand for a team that started the season number 14 barely making a bowl game. Third down, speaking of coaching changes in the Sunshine State. I do not see how Florida State can justify making another coaching move two years into a tenure. Not just the financial reasons. They paid a lot of money to Willie Taggart to make him go away, and it would be pretty costly to fire Mike Norvell after two seasons or less if they were to do it in this season. There's a bigger issue here. If you listened to the show last week, Bud Elliott of 24-7 Sports explained how the first recruiting class of a new coach is often a washout in the early signing period era. If FSU fires another coach after two seasons or less, the next coach is going to take over a roster that is a mess and a program that will need more than two years to fix. So will FSU give that coach the time to fix it? At this point, it's beyond debating whether Norvell has done a good enough job or whether Willie Taggart should have been given more time. The turnover and instability in and of itself is weighing down the program. At some point, FSU is going to have to give somebody a little time to dig out. Another change is likely just to make the hole even deeper. That is the show for today. like to thank my producer. John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere you get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. If you have any questions that you'd like me or my guest to answer, email them to aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. That's aptop25mailbag at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on all topics, college football, serious or silly. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.